Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 2 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Early Years. 1239 to 1258, Part 2. It is important to realize the exact position of the lands made over by Henry to Edward when the young prince was started on his active career. The appanage he received was a large one, but it was so unprofitable that Henry had to promise his son that the value of the land settled on him should not fall short of 15,000 marks. In fact, Edward's whole lordship was in such a disturbed state that the maintenance of law and order within it could only be assured by means of lavish subsidies from the royal exchequer. Such subsidies Henry was in no condition to make. The impossible task was therefore assigned to Edward and his advisers of reducing Ireland, Wales, and Gascony with their own resources while at the same time it was necessary that sufficient revenue should be derived from these poor and disturbed regions to provide for the support of their lord's household. Ireland was, of all Edward's dominions, in the most hopeless position. The first energies of the Norman conquerors of the twelfth century had been exhausted, and though the great Norman houses still ruled extensive territories, they had begun to experience the attraction of Irish influence, and besides the hibernization of the Norman lords, the native seps were coming down from the hills and disputing with their new masters the domination of the plain country. But the power of the English crown had become insignificant alike over Norman lord and Irish chieftain. Edward's deputy at Dublin could command the obedience of neither. The Celtic chieftains upheld the tribal anarchy of the old Irish seps. The Norman lords saw their ideal of government in a political feudalism, which gave the great landlord every regalian right and necessarily involved the complete disintegration of all central authority. The central power was weak, foreign, and unpopular. These complicated evils had reduced the unhappy island to a state of confusion almost worse than that which had prevailed in the wild times of independence, before Strongbow and his associates had crossed the St. George's Channel. To grapple seriously with such difficulties was beyond the strength of Edward's advisers, they paid little attention to Ireland, preferring to concentrate their efforts on the smaller and more accessible territory of Wales. The plans of Edward's advisers in Wales for the reduction of Wales 
were made possible by the grant of the great earldom of Chester. Ever since the conquest, Chester had been a district standing by itself. It was a palatine earldom set up by the conqueror to keep in check the wild Welshman. With this object, the earl was given an almost absolute control of the civil and military resources of his shire. His duties to the crown were discharged by simple homage and service. He held Cheshire as freely by his sword as the king held England by his crown. This position is in all respects analogous to that of the practically independent feudal chieftains of France or Germany. The result was that Cheshire became a great military state. Its population was famed for their violence, turbulence, and martial powers. Headed by their fierce lords, the Cheshiremen had conquered nearly all Wales between the Dee and the Conway, though a later wave of Welsh enthusiasm had driven the invaders back almost to the walls of Chester. But the great line of earls of Chester was now extinct. The bestowal of lapsed fiefs was among the most important of the prerogatives of the crown. It was no small gain to the royal cause that Henry was thus able to invest his son with the rich, fair, and fertile palatinate. It involved revenue, soldiers, influence, dignity, and the status of the greatest of English earls. It gave the new Earl of Chester means to make good the vaguer grant of Wales. Wales included all the exceptional jurisdictions of the Western Peninsula, largely but by no means exclusively inhabited by Welshmen. In thinking of the Wales of the 13th century, we must forget the modern boundary which separates the twelve or thirteen counties of the Wales of today from the modern England. This boundary goes no farther back than the reign of Henry VIII. Thirteenth-century Wales included much that is now England, while some parts of what is now Wales were then English ground. Beyond the vague and undefined western limits of Cheshire, Shropshire, Herefordshire, and Gloucestershire, everything was Wales. Before the Norman conquest, Wales had been ruled by a swarm of petty Celtic chieftains whose energies were consumed in fruitless fights with each other, the true battles of kites and crows of British history. All owed a nominal allegiance to the English kings, but this lax feudal tie did not prevent them plundering and devastating the English border whenever a fair opportunity was offered. But the strong rule of William I and his sons brought about a great change. The Norman conquest of England was followed by the Norman conquest of Wales. A swarm of Norman adventurers crossed over the border and drove the Welsh from the fair plains to the barren uplands. The mutual jealousies of the petty Welsh kings and princes made national union impossible, and without union, effectual resistance to the Normans was hardly to be thought of. But the Norman conquerors were as little united as the Welsh that they displaced. As in Ireland, the ideal of feudal lord and clan chieftain had this in common, 
that it involved an infinite division of political power. The Norman conquerors of Wales fought for their own lands and were almost independent of the kings of England. They set up, therefore, a whole host of petty states over which they ruled like little kings. These small Norman principalities on Welsh ground were known as the Lordship's Marcher, and the whole district as the Marches of Wales, though the original idea of the march as a border was largely lost sight of in an age when the Welsh marches included the districts so remote from the English border as a great part of the modern Pembrokeshire. The most important of the Lordship's marcher of Wales were the Palatine Earldom of Pembroke and the great Lordship of Glamorgan, whose lords were not called earls, only because they had already that title from their English Earldom of Gloucester. Next in importance was the Lordship of Brecon, an appendage of the Earldom of Hereford. More to the north, the great family of Mortimer bore away in Shropshire and the Middle Marches. The four cantreds of Pervethulad, the plain country, Ros, Rovoniog, Dufrin, Cluid, and Tirgangel, which roughly corresponded to the modern Denbyshire and Flintshire, depended on the earls of Chester. All southern and eastern Wales was thus march ground. The Norman conquest also indirectly affected Welsh Wales. It finally forced the native Welsh to unite among each other as the only alternative to complete subjection. A great national and literary revival broke out in Celtic Wales. The lords of Gwynedd, whose rule included the mountain fastnesses of Snowdon and Merioneth, and the rich cornlands of Anglesey, became leaders of the Welsh national revival. Bit by bit, the old jealousies of tribe and tribe, of north and south, were removed. At last, all Welshmen looked up to the lords of Snowdon as the champions of the national cause against the restless and oppressive French invaders. Llewellyn ap Jorwerth, the greatest of Welsh princes, cleverly used this new feeling of national unity to extend his North Welsh principality at the expense of the now divided and quarrelsome marchers. He pushed his successes eastward to the walls of Chester and southwards to the shores of Carmarthen Bay, thus forcing a wedge of Welsh territory through parts of the modern Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire, though the royal stronghold of Carmarthen still checked his onward progress. But while his praises were chanted by the native bards as the hero of the Cymric race, Llewellyn never forgot that he was not only a national Welsh prince, but a great feudal English lord. He accordingly allied himself with the baronial opposition to English kings and took a prominent part in the struggle for Magna Carta, clauses of which ensured him many important privileges. Before his death in 1240, he was proud to call himself Prince of All Wales. His son David, 1240 to 1246, born of his English wife Joan, King John's bastard daughter, was hardly strong enough to uphold Llewellyn's power. But after his death, 
a full-blooded Welshman again acquired the principality. The new prince was David's nephew, Cluellen ap Griffith, the son of Cluellen ap Jorwerth's favorite son by a Welsh mother. For nearly forty years, from 1246 to 1282, Cluellen ap Griffith strove to maintain the policy, both national and feudal, of his grandfather, but at the time we are now dealing with, he had not attained any very great measure of success. The twofold division of Wales into the Principality of the Marches must never be lost sight of if we wish to understand the Welsh policy of Edward I. We must remember that the Principality did not then mean, as it does in its loose modern sense, the whole of Wales, but strictly the districts ruled over by the Prince of Wales, Cluellen ap Griffith. At this time, that region roughly comprised what now constitutes the three shires of Anglesey, Carnarvon, and Merioneth. The four cantreds and the lands between the Dovey and Carmarthen Bay had fallen into the hands of the English king and were now the main districts granted to Edward. Edward's Welsh lands therefore included a great deal of what is now Denbyshire and Flintshire, and of what is now Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire. But beyond these royal dominions were the marches, the term meaning not simply the border districts, but all those parts of Wales ruled over by Norman lords on feudal principles. A few of these may have fallen by lapse into Edward's hands, but the real significance of Henry's grant was that it included all the recent acquisitions from the restless princes of Wales. Edward had already vigorous and able, though fierce and unscrupulous, advisers. His ministers now formed a scheme of introducing English institutions into their master's lands in Wales. The current phrase, well known in Ireland down to the 17th century, for bringing English law into a country was to make the district in question shire ground. Edward's advisers therefore sought to attach the four cantreds to the county of Chester, while they set up a new shire of which the centre was Carmarthen, but which was, for convenience sake, split up later into the counties of Cardigan and Carmarthen. So sovereign a remedy was English law considered for the chronic anarchy of Wales that some Welshmen had actually begged Henry to introduce it into their land. But the whole weight of national feeling clung to the rough, rude laws of Howell the Good, which the Welsh regarded as the basis of their jurisprudence. While Edward's officers were establishing their hundred moots and shire moots, his Welsh subjects took counsel together and declared that they would never give up the laws of their fathers. The violence and greed with which Edward's deputy, Geoffrey Langley, sought to bring in the new system completed their disgust. In their despair they turned to Llewellyn, who gleefully welcomed a chance of winning back the dominions of his grandfather. In the autumn of 1256, Llewellyn's troops poured down from the heights of Snowdon over the four cantreds. The plain country submitted through the goodwill of the native inhabitants for the invaders. Two castles alone, Diserth near Rill 
and Digenwy, near Landudno, held out for Earl Edward. Edward hurried from the delights of the tourney and tilt-yard to defend his inheritance, but he had no money and no men to cope with the trained warriors of Clewellyn. He soon exhausted a loan that he obtained from his rich uncle Richard, and earnestly besought his father to come to his assistance. "'What business is it of mine?' answered Henry. "'I have given you the land. You must act for yourself.' But next year Henry was prevailed upon to accompany Edward in an expedition to North Wales. Father and son penetrated to the sorely beleaguered castle of Deganwy, where they spent some time. But on their retirement the Welsh again became masters of all the land but a few castles. It was Edward's first campaign, an inglorious beginning for so great a martial career. But it gave the young earl valuable experience in Welsh warfare, and may well have first opened his eyes to the weakness and incompetence of his father as a king. It left him discredited, overwhelmed with debt, and eager to barter away part of his patrimony for ready money. But it showed him the way by which Clewellyn might some day be conquered, and it showed him still more clearly how Wales, if conquered, ought to be ruled. The germ of all Edward's later Welsh policy lies in his early attempt to establish the Shire system in his Welsh estates. Gascony, Guienne, or Aquitaine, the terms at this period at least are practically synonymous, was no less than Wales the subject of Edward's special concern. It included all that remained in English hands of the vast possessions which Eleanor of Poitou had brought to her husband, Henry II. It was a land of great wealth and prosperity, a land of vineyards and rich cornfields, watered by noble rivers, with many a wealthy and flourishing town, and a great band of warlike, turbulent, and lawless nobility, in whom the wild, fierce spirit still lived, that had in an earlier age found an undying expression in the songs of Bertrand de Borne and among whom Richard the Lionheart had found the ideals of his restless, adventurous, purposeless life. Cut off from France by language, manners, sympathies, and traditions, the Gascons were content with the rule of their English dukes, because they were so far off that they had little reason to fear them, and because they found in England the best and readiest market for their wines." but the towns were little republics almost as free and self-contained as the great cities of Italy, and like them, torn by fierce factions, such as the Rostin and Cologne of Bordeaux, and the popular and aristocratic parties of Bayonne. The feudal nobles in their hill-castles on the slopes of the Pyrenees and Cévennes were, for all practical purposes, independent. Chief among them was Gaston, Viscount of Béarn, the uncle of Queen Eleanor, and the greediest, cruelest, most desperate and turbulent of men. Strong neighbors watched eagerly the chronic tumults within the duchy, hoping to derive therefrom some advantage to themselves. Of these, the most dangerous were the King of Navarre and Alfonso, Count of Poitiers and Toulouse, the brother of Louis the Ninth of France, 
actual possessor of the northern and eastern portions of Henry II's Aquitanian inheritance and the pioneer of North French influence in the Languedoc. Against such complicated troubles, weak King Henry had been able to make no way at all, until in 1248 he had made Simon of Montfort seneschal or governor of Gascony. Earl Simon's fierce, strong, vigorous rule soon began to work a great change, but he was reckless of his means and strove to do everything at once. He had poor support from England and soon raised up a whole host of enemies in Gascony, who overwhelmed the English king with complaints and eagerly demanded the recall of the Earl of Leicester. This was the state of things when Edward first received the grant of Gascony from his father. His uncle and godfather still remained seneschal, acting henceforth for the son and not for the father. At first the king encouraged Simon, hoping that he would prepare the way for Edward's future rule. You shall receive, he wrote to his brother-in-law, from us and our heir, a recompense worthy of your services. It was left to the Gascon towns first to bring Edward into that opposition to Earl Simon, which was to color the whole of his future life. They hated Leicester and strove to set up their new lord against his fierce deputy. We beg your majesty, wrote the deputies of the flourishing city of Bazas, to drive Earl Simon from Gascony and send us your son Edward our lord, who will find us all in peace. Henry, in response, confirmed his grant to Edward, but with his usual weakness again sent back Simon as governor, though plainly showing that he had no longer his full confidence. When Henry was in Gascony, in 1253, Simon was still his seneschal, but next year he was dismissed in disgrace and then filled with a burning sense of wrong and hatred plunged eagerly into the camp of the baronial opposition in England. In 1254 and 1255, Edward himself lived mostly in Gascony. Here, too, he acquired valuable experience. Apart from the importance of his Gascon rule in first bringing out his opposition to Leicester, it taught him lessons as to how the English king's lands in France should be governed which in later years bore him excellent fruit. It moreover gave him that insight into South French and Spanish politics, which qualified him to fulfill the leading part in those regions to which in after years he was called. On his return to England, he did not forget the interests of his Gascon subjects. In 1261, he drew up an elaborate series of statutes for Bordeaux, which, while taking away from the citizens the right of choosing their own mayor, gave them in compensation full protection from the exactions of the royal officials. The need of such protection had been brought home to Edward by the bitter complaints which the wine merchants of Bordeaux now presented to him of the ruin to their trade caused by the exactions of the king's officials. Edward eagerly espoused their cause and plainly told his father that such exactions must cease. For the first time, his sense of the impolicy of Henry's conduct prompted him to break through the strong ties of affection which bound him to the fondest 
and most indulgent of fathers. Henry was bitterly offended. My own flesh and blood, he exclaimed with a sigh, are assailing me. The times of my grandfather, whose children waged war against him, are surely coming back. Nothing shows more clearly the impracticable and hopeless attitude of the old king than these foolish and petulant remarks. But the time was coming when Edward's faithfulness to his father was to endure far sterner trials than this. The time of his apprenticeship was over. With the beginning of the great dispute between Henry and his barons, Edward enters into his real political career. End of Section 2 Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.